Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Growth Lab podcast series. What drives economic development? More precisely, what constrains economic development? An emerging consensus on this question surrounds the role of locally embedded productive capabilities and the idea that countries build on their existing capabilities to move into new economic activities. In new research published in Nature Communications, Drs. Nevo Cleary, Mohamed Yildirim, and Ricardo Hausman develop a mathematical model based on capability accumulation of countries and use this model to construct a directed network of products called the EcoSpace. They uncover a modular structure in the network and show that low and middle income countries move from product clusters dominated by few capability products to more advanced products over time. They also show that the network model is predictive of product appearances in countries over time. In this episode of the Growth Lab podcast series, research analyst Ana Grisanti interviews the authors Nivo Cleary, Mohamed Yildirim, and Ricardo Hausman to better understand their new research on productive ecosystems and the arrow of development. Thank you all for being here. We're here to talk about the productive ecosystems and the arrow of development paper that you just published. So I wanted us to start with what is the framework of your paper and what is the research question to be answered here? How did this research question come about and in what discussion space is it relevant? So I guess I'll start with how the paper came about. I arrived at the Growth Lab in 2013 as a formerly a PhD student in network science and I knew very little about the field of economic complexity and one of the key tenets of the economic complexity theory which I'm sure Ricardo will elaborate on in future questions is the idea that countries are endowed with capabilities and it's the presence of these capabilities that constrains their ability to grow right there's some kind of directed process by which countries accumulate capabilities and it enables them to move into new economic areas, new products, new industries, etc. And so when I started to think about this from a network perspective, it seemed to me that this was very much a directed process, right? That there was a process by which countries accumulated capabilities, but that the modeling tools that were currently being used were not necessarily directed in essence, and specifically network approaches, right? They were using a static or a sort of cross-sectional network, which didn't describe this process of capability accumulation over time. So the real motivation for the paper and for the research was to better capture using a model and using data this directed process of capability accumulation, which, you know, if you were to explain how development worked through capability accumulation, that was very much present in the literature at that time, but the modeling techniques didn't quite capture that process. In the growth lab, you were thinking about product space, which is a cross-sectional look at the capability correlations, I would say. But we've been also thinking about this dynamic process, which products should be there to grow other products because how we see capabilities are through the products that we have. So that was the basic idea behind the paper by looking at what products are often there when we see a jump of a country to a new product, we can identify this ecosystem. That's what we call this space instead of a product space. And we mathematically show that this ecosystem captures the capability of overlap between the products. So we can say that this product has that much overlap with other products. And this leads to, for us to understand this arrow of development in terms of capability accumulation. Yes, I like both descriptions. To me, the idea of arrow of development implies that you know, you're more likely to first make a car and then make an airplane. 
it's very unlikely that you start making airplanes and then move to making cars. The idea being that an airplane is something harder to make, requires more things, so that you're more likely to start with the simpler things and then move to more complicated things. So first is the idea of the arrow, learn from something that's happening over time. But I think in this paper, there's that idea and there's a different idea which says that instead of asking yourself which other product is there when this product appears, just product to product, it's really a relationship between a product and all the other products that tend to be already present when this product appears. So it's a relationship between a product and a basket of products and, and, and a whole plethora of products. In the business schools, they talk about business ecosystems, right? That's the typical parlance in business schools. Economists don't like that too much, but it is sort of like, what are all the other species that are around when this species arises? And I think that idea is a core idea in this group. And the second idea is the idea of arrow of time. Some things happen before others. Can you explain the way in which you redefine capability relationships between products in this paper? So what we do is basically the capabilities are somehow elusive. We know that they are there. We can taste them, we can smell them, but we cannot really identify all the capabilities extensively, right? So that's the elusive nature of capabilities. So you need to look at how you can quantify the relationships between these capabilities. So in our work, when we write this capability in terms of mathematical models and relate the probability of jump to the capability overlaps between products, we think that we can identify the extent of the length of the capability vector. We don't still identify what the capabilities are exactly, but we kind of capture the extent of the capabilities required for a product by looking at this arrow of development. And by capturing this extensive margin of the capabilities, we can say that which products are more complex. So it arrives at a different definition of complexity, because if you require a lot more capabilities, it means that this product is very sophisticated and it becomes at end of the ladder of development. So that's the new way that we are measuring capabilities here. So I think we have two components to the paper, right? We have a model, which as I'm going to explain, it's about capabilities, right? A product in a country that are endowed with capabilities. And we have a model that tries to capture the, the gap in capabilities between what a country has and what a product requires. And what we do is we relate this model of capabilities to an expression for product presences and appearances, right? And that's something that we can empirically measure in data. So we use international trade data to estimate the capability overlap between products. So we take this quite similar approach to the product space in the sense that we use international trade data to infer the capability overlap between products. But what is quite different is the way in which we actually calculate that overlap. Because what we do is we use the time dimension in this data, the sequence of product presences and product appearances for countries. And we sort of mine a much greater amount of data because we use data all the way back to the 80s in order to try to infer these capability overlaps to create, instead of a cross-sectional undirected network, we create a directed network. So that's one of the key differences between what we do in this paper to construct the network and what was done in, in previous work. 
Great. Thank you. And this question kind of stems from what you were just talking about, Neve. What contribution does this method make to the theory of how countries move forward in diversification? And how does the ecosystem space add to what is learned from the product space? So I think what we see is like the title of the paper says the arrow of development, right? So we see countries jump from some type of products to others. And often this is from like low complexity to high complexity products, for instance, what we observe in the data. So one of our findings in the paper, we show that this relationship goes from low complexity, low PCI, like from the economic complexity network product to the high complexity products in terms of diversification. In the future, one might ask whether the countries that achieve these jumps do they have different type of properties and other things that facilitate these jumps? It's an open question. But in terms of diversification, what we observe is it's often the case that we see this path of diversification repeatedly. And on top, it's generally from the slow complexity to high complexity nature. So essentially, I would say that what you're doing, as Neve was saying, is you look at a country's production of all products and you're learning from the whole history of diversification of all the countries in the world over all the previous years to infer what is likely to be a jump from this country given all the things that it's currently making. And the model allows you to make that prediction in some sense, to choose, to identify which are the most likely next steps for this country. I would add in the product space lingo, you look at all the products the country makes and how close they are to the particular product divided by how close all the products are to this particular product. So it looks at from the monkey and forest analogy that Ricardo devised, it looks at how many trees that you have monkeys on and how close those monkeys are to the tree that you want to jump to. Here, what we do is we basically come up with a different type of density measure that is a direct result of the mathematical model that we developed. So what are some of the advantages of calculating complexity and density in this way, rather than the way the product space does it? Well, the paper shows that you get more predictive power. And it's also dynamic. That's this direction to the relationship. In the product space, the distance between products are symmetric, for instance. Here, mm -hmm. you can make it asymmetric. So it's a choice to minimize the noise that we do in the product space. But what we do is we come up with a, something that has an arrow that goes from a product A to product B. And it's generally, if the arrow from product A to product B is very thick, then the other direction is not as thick, not as much informative in terms of jumps. As we were saying before, because we include so much more data from the past, right? It's unsurprising in many ways that we get a better predictive power because we are learning from what has happened in the past. And that can be a, quite a powerful addition to the model. Great. Thank you. So let's dig a little deeper into your results. Can you talk about how you created the product communities and how they differ in terms of the ecosystem size and ecosystem input? And what are some of the, what you call stepping stone communities? So for any network, we can first ask ourselves, what is a community? So in a network, a community is a partition of the nodes into groups, and those groups are typically characterized by high internal connectivity, right? So you have groups of nodes that are highly connected, but those groups are less connected in a sense externally or to other groups. And so when we think about our network, a group of nodes is a group of products, and they are connected by some kind of 
high degree of capability overlap. So these are groups of products that require similar capabilities. So when we apply an algorithm, which is based on a sort of random walker on a network, so this random walker on the network detects areas of the network with high density of edge weights. We find, I think it's five communities, and we study the characteristics of the nodes, the products in these different communities. And we have some communities that are full of things like food products and you know, low complexity type activities, things that very much developing countries might be active in. And then we have other communities that are full of sophisticated, complex products, such as you know, pharmaceuticals and electronic manufacturing, et cetera. So we can characterize these communities based on the size of the ecosystem. So this is going back to what Mohammed was saying about being able to characterize the vector of capabilities in a sense for a product. The size of an ecosystem of a product is really how many other products tend to be present, right? Before this product appears. A product with a large ecosystem size tends to require many products that were present in the past and is a complex in a sense in the lingo. A product that has a high ecosystem input score tends to be part of the ecosystem of many other products. So it tends to be, you know, almost a, a springboard product that you might start from to move into other products in the future. So those would be the low complexity things like food and, and sort of fur skins and things like that. So we have the different communities we characterize in terms of, we see quite some distinction between communities in the paper, for example, what we term the yellow community is full of, you know, these low complexity products, which are mainly ecosystem input products. And then the blue community, which is very complex and has manufacturing and pharmaceuticals, this is characterized by products with a large ecosystem size. So they require many other existing capabilities and products to be present before those products tend to emerge in countries. We also would like to know a bit about how ecosystem size is related to wealth of countries. So while we are building this ecosystem measure or other measures, the only information that we use is which countries export which products. So we don't put any price information or any other measure that can capture the wealth of the nations. But surprisingly, if you look at the mean ecosystem size of a country's products and its low GDP per capita, we see a super high correlation. So because the large mean ecosystem size means that these products are requiring a lot of capabilities and countries making these products are going to be making in many other products like the, in the economic complexity measures that we develop. And not surprisingly, we see that kind of relationship. So the mean ecosystem size of a country is highly correlated with the GDP per capita of the country. On the other hand, we have this ecosystem input propensity of a product. So a product that's more fundamental can lead to many other products. So the product could be a source to many other products. And when you see that, look at the mean ecosystem input size, we see a negative correlation instead of a positive correlation. So it means the countries that have only fundamental products, like very unsophisticated products, they can go to many places. They can, we can devise them many different development paths. But as current status, if you have predominantly products that are inputs to many other products, then generally you have less GDP per capita. Yeah, so I mean, the next thing we did was we used the aforementioned communities to characterize, in a sense, the development paths, the arrow of development of, of different countries, right? So we looked at how countries change their share of products in each of these different communities. So we saw that, for example, we could see this kind of clear trend that countries over time would move out of this sort of low complexity community and they would move into the, the blue and purple communities, which were characterized by these 
large ecosystem size complex products. And so we, we actually tracked for many countries, you know, at which point did they kind of transition from having more, you know, more products in yellow to having more products in blue. And we saw some really interesting patterns. You know, we saw countries like Singapore transition in the 80s. And then we had a, a raft of, sort of middle-income countries transition around the year 2000, Malaysia, Mexico, China transitioned much more recently. And, you know, India is still on its way to transitioning. So it was kind of an interesting way of capturing and visualizing, in a sense, the development of the kind of export baskets of countries over time in the network. And very surprisingly, many countries are super stable, right? So it means that they haven't diversified, like they haven't changed their direction towards higher complexity products or higher input ecosystem size products. So it means that these countries like to transition or to get out of the poverty trap, they need to transition, but they haven't done that yet. That's really cool how you can see the history of countries through like what they're exporting and how they're moving from less developed to more developed. Ricardo, would you like to add anything? And another metaphor we like to use is that products are like words. They're made by putting letters together. And if you want to know if a country can make a product, you're sort of asking the question, do they have the letters? Since we cannot observe the letters, what we actually observe is all the other products that would require those letters. And since every product requires a collection of letters, maybe those are going to be present in some of the products that you're making, in different products you're making. So a very long word is going to require many letters. Those are going to be expressed in many of the other products that a country makes. So that's this ecosystem of that product. It's all the other products that use more or less the same letters. And because those products already pre-exist, it means those letters are there. It means that this new product can appear. And so rich countries would be countries that have a lot of letters. Mm-hmm. Consequently, they make many products and among them, they make products that require a lot of letters. They make long words. And so these products at the end of the process are these very long words. They have these big ecosystem requirements and poor countries start with these short words. So they don't have big ecosystem requirements because it's just a short word, very few letters that you need to get into those industries. And the whole challenge is to add letters in a way that can be transformed into more words and to longer words. That process If you send to a very poor country a nuclear engineer, most likely that nuclear engineer is not going to be very useful because he needs a whole lot of things to be there for him to do his thing. These ecosystem requirements tell us, is this transition likely to happen given that this new product that you're trying to make requires all of these letters, but if you had them, then all of these things should be also present and they're not. So maybe that transition is unlikely to happen. And the fact that transitions that we say are likely still don't happen means that this process of capability accumulation must be challenging. Thank you. So what are some of the limitations, if any, of this model? I think that the fundamental limitation that we're struggling with is that we wish we knew what these capabilities were. We wish we could observe them, that we could identify them explicitly. We call this metaphorically and the difference between the genotype and the phenotype. Genetics started by just looking at the properties of beans, were they? And Mendel had no idea about where these 
properties came from, but he found some relationship between you know, what happens if you make you know, seeds from a tree with beans of this shape with sex organs of trees that create beans of this other kind. And what happens when you mix them? And you could infer the properties of these mixes just from the beans, because Mendel had no idea of the genes. He did not know about DNA. He did not know about these things. So he could only measure things at the level of species and not at the level of the genetic code. So we are a little bit trapped in that. We can see very easily the products. We have some very broad categories of the requirements of those products. We can look at the labor inputs that are used in making the product according to some classification. We can look at the input-output characteristics of those products. But many of these things that a product requires are things that, you know, if you don't have them, it doesn't matter because you can just import them. So which ones are the ones that really are critical, that they have to be in place for this product to appear? That's something that we still don't know. And that we are making progress in different papers on that question. There's a current paper by Dario Diodato and Ulrich Schetter are working on, trying to say, well, let's assume that these inputs are really occupations. What are the occupations that have to be present? And are those occupations present in this country? And try to predict from that. You don't get as good predictions from a purely predictive point of view as this paper, because you're not trying to maximize the predictive capacity, you're trying to maximize understanding of what may be happening here, what may be the mechanism. And so I think that that's where a little bit this research has to go. If we look at limitations of this specific model in terms of if you were to try to replicate it or apply it in your own context, we mentioned a couple of limitations in the paper. The predictive power is good, but we still have quite a lot of false positives. So things that you know our density metric says should appear that don't, right? So this is, of course, there's a lot of things going on in an economy. There are a lot of things we don't observe in this data. And so certainly that's something to keep in mind when policymakers would be looking at a granular level. And so one of the things that we suggest is that this could be quite interesting way of identifying market failures, for example, trying to understand why things that seemingly have the perfect ecosystem in place don't end up appearing at all. And the other limitation that we mentioned in the paper is that of course the technological requirements of products and capability overlaps evolve over time, not very fast, but they still evolve. And so, when one is looking to the future and thinking, what could you use this type of metric for when you're predicting? We suggest that a sort of five year time frame is probably roughly appropriate. That if you were looking for further into the future, you possibly couldn't neglect this change in the network structure that would occur over that time, even though we do find that it is really quite stable over the time period that, that we look at. Great, thank you. Let's end with how is the ecosystem metric helpful for policymakers? What would be the next steps for policymakers to use this metric in a practical way? I would guess that this paper will be of interest to anybody who's interested currently in in the Atlas of Economic Complexity and in the product space, because it is an improvement, figuring out which things are likely to happen in your country, if you push a little bit, if you figure out these market failures that Neve was talking about. So that includes, you know, people who are in the interest of promoting investment, whether it's at the national level, at the state level, at the city level. It also is useful for anybody who's planning to invest in a particular industry in a particular place. 
It helps you know if the ecosystem that is in place is appropriate for the appearance of this new product. So I think it adds to, to those activities. So investment promoters, investors, firms, etc., that are trying to make location decisions. Those are the two that come to mind. In the paper, we mentioned what Neil said about identifying market failure, because I assume the product that should be there is not appearing. Our measure indicates that with high likelihood that product should be there. It gives you this identity of the products that you can go. And we also identify which products are the closest ones. We have the closest capability overlaps. And you can go to that industry and ask what limits the jump to this other product. So it provides you with a concrete tool to go and survey the business people and so forth in terms of identifying the market failures. And the policymakers could use different policy tools to address those failures. And also in the paper, we say that this application of the idea of this ecosystem or the capability overlaps is not just limited to products and countries. That's why we published this paper in a general interest scientific journal, uh, Nature Communications, because like, we think that this idea could be brought to the ecology methodology and some other literature. And on top, we think this idea of genotype versus phenotype, as Ricardo alluded to, is an important concept when we are approaching different problems in many different fields. I would echo those sentiments. I think the path forward for us, in a sense, is to think about Many of the product-based metrics have been implemented at a regional and urban level using other types of data. So we use expert data when we look at countries, primarily because it's a very clean, standardized, you know, reliable data set. But when you go to the subnational level, you have use of all sorts of different types of data sets that capture a lot more activity in an economy. So, you know, employment in industries, which captures domestic activity as well as exporting activity. So I think there's a lot of scope to develop this model in that direction and try to create similar metrics that can be used for regional urban development experts. So thank you all for being here. So this paper is published in Nature Communications and the link to the paper can be found in the podcast notes. If you want to learn more about the Growth Lab's latest research and events, please visit growthlab.cid.harvard.edu.